0: So everybody no as you're coming in uh welcome back. Thanks for thanks for being here. As you can see on our screen, we've got uh the Brock family, well, a portion of the Brock family uh that we uh are partnered with with their work in uh France. And so we thought it'd be fun they're they're skyping in with us. Uh so they can hear me through this uh microphone. Uh and we kinda told them you can't actually see us, we can see you, so don't do anything strange with your faces. Um but uh Chris is uh Chris has family in Lake Wales uh and uh, and is from from this area. Um so some of you may recall him or, or even know him. But what I'm gonna do is just ask them a couple of questions. Uh, so that we can hear from them, um, and uh, go from there, and then and then we'll ask Richard to come and uh, get get started. So, uh, Chris, can you hear me okay?
1: Yeah, no problem.
0: Okay, great. Uh, great to see you guys. Looking Thank good. Um, so, would you would you tell everyone uh, first where you are uh, and how long you have been there? Kind of give them a. a maybe a, a, a minute, minute and a half summary of the last 18 months, 24 months.
1: Sure. Um, we're currently in Toulouse, France, which is a, um, the fourth largest city in, in France in the Southwest corner, about two hours North of Spain. It's not a city particularly well known, uh, outside of France, but it is a, um, it is a large city. It's that like is one of the largest in France. It is the home of Airbus and um, Air France, the, the aerospace industry here in France. So it's a growing city. Um, we've been here since July. We moved. Um, we moved to France in January of 2015, uh, but we spent a, a year in the Alps learning French, and then another six months in, um, in a little in a little town uh, in, in the south of France, more uh, the middle of France. Uh, Called a Less, and we were there for six months doing an internship with a pastor uh, and working on our French again. And then we moved here in July to start our, our church planning work here in the southwest um, suburb of, of Toulouse. So, there we work with a, MTW is partnered with a French denomination, a Reformed Evangelical denomination, and we are partnered with them. And our goal is to help plant these churches, not PCA churches, but, um, but the denomination is called the Unibref. And our goal is to help plant the Unipref Church, and so there is already a, a sort of a mother or a sister church in in the downtown Toulouse. We are about thirty-five minutes from that from that church, and so our hope and our goal is to start a new church in this area and help and help serve this community better. There are about three hundred thousand people in this greater area that, that have no easy access to an evangelical church, and so it's our hope to to start that and to see that going. Uh,
0: great. If you don't mind me asking, what is the um, just out of curiosity, the the Islamic population in Toulouse is it is it pretty high?
1: You know, it's all high as, well as a relative number. Um, certainly you see it more here. Um, there's the, the women wear the the jeep and, and that kind of thing more. The head garbs more regularly. Uh, it's nothing like uh, if you went to Marseille, that the the north, it, and it's also dangerous to assume that everybody who's North African is Muslim. But the North African population in Marseille is about 25 percent, but that's that's skewed incredibly high. It's it's in neighborhood of five to eight. So um, generally speaking, when we take when we go out, you'll you'll see a woman here or there, or a guy here or there. Um, I don't. Know, there's there's a large mosque in the town just north of us um, that I think serves this whole community. So I mean, it's here, and it, it, it's um, it's a little bit of a cultural thing. I think that Muslims express their difference a little more here because because certain uh, France has pushed back against Islam a bit and so there's sort of this tension between the two so the, the folks who are Muslims I wouldn't say flaunt it but just but show it more than they might in the states I, we lived in Charlotte for years which is a big city and has a Muslim population but I don't ever remember seeing anybody in a headscarf and yet here it's I mean everywhere, uh, everywhere you go but even then it's, it's less than 10%
0: so uh what what has probably been for for you guys uh in the last almost two years now living there uh, what's been the hardest thing for you to adjust to or get used to?
1: everybody speaks french
0: <laughs> yeah that that that'll hurt your chances, won't it for communication
1: and so um you know when we got in here Donet knew a little, but I spoke none, and so um you know as we as we learned. It sounds funny, but um, you know, but if, if people look like us. Uh, you know, there's 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 f- people who look like my grandmother and, and my friends, and, and yet when you when when you go to talk to them, they all spoke French, and it takes a long time to to adjust to that, and then the, and then the little differences. Uh, France looks a lot like America. They have a lot of the same types of stores and 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 that sort of thing, but 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 it operates subtly, very differently, and so we constantly run into. You can't get you can't do anything from twelve to two, um, even the large hardware stores like Lowe's they close yeah, for lunch.
2: Closed. Yeah.
1: And so when you go to, to grab something real quick on your lunch break, that that doesn't work. And so that's that's taking. I would say that's probably the biggest adjustment for us. Yeah.
2: And then we we've moved a lot uh, in the past couple. So that and had a baby.
1: <laughs> so yeah. Oh yeah, the baby. <laughs>
2: so those those things are. Uh,
1: um, those are probably those are the two big ones. Sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, okay, so it, those have been the hardest things. Uh, what, what's been the most fun for you? What have you enjoyed the most uh, about living there so far?
2: I would say the uh, the French Christians that are here that we have the opportunity to meet. Um, when we did our internship, and, uh, uh, it's just a joy. And they, they have a—there's uh, such a light in a dark place, and they can be so excited— um, that we're here and, and to, to be in church. And it's just really, um, I feel like every relationship and family that we've met like that uh, they were super kind to us when I was pregnant and had the baby. And it, it was just, uh, each one of those relationships have, have just been a real blessing.
1: That's yeah, I'd echo that. There's a lot of fun things about France, but, but that none of the things in France, none of the beauty and the wine and the cheese, that lasts you about two weeks, and then it gets old, and you want to go home.
0: And so it, it really is the Real that we get to see here. It's, um, I don't know how that would counter-cultural be. countercultural to be
1: Christian. You know, in, in, the, in America, particularly in the South, this isn't a bad thing, but, but there's a certain Christianese and, and a certain expectation cultural. that you go to church, and, and it's cultural. So I mean, even if people don't go to church, they don't think it's weird that you go to church. But here it's very bizarre. Uh, Protestants are regarded as, as cults. And, and, you know, and, and as weirdos and faith, faith has no place in the public dialogue and the public forum. And so for, for people to be willing to go to church and to want to, to be Christians and to be willing to share that, um, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty remarkable thing. And it's fun to be around that and to be a part of that and to, and to get to serve that in that way.
0: That's great. Well, uh, as we uh, sign off here, we, we want to pray for you. So would you give us uh, maybe two or three kind of big, big ticket prayer items um, Richard Pratt is here. You know, he wrote a book on prayer, and so if you can get him praying, maybe you'll you'll uh, you'll be in good shape. But um, but no, seriously, uh, tell us what those are, so we can be uh, regularly praying for those things for you.
1: Yeah. So our, our big one right now, we need to need to find a building, uh, a place to to meet. We'd like to start. We wanted to start worship services by now, but we've just we've had very little success finding a place that's that's large enough and that um that meets. their certain codes and standards that have to be met in order to have a certain number of people gather together and so we've had a little bit of trouble finding those and then when we have found them we've been turned down because we are a religious group and and the owners weren't interested in renting and that's not illegal here so um so we need a we need a place we need to find a place to meet so we can start having worship services we won't we won't get the church plan off the ground if we don't have a place to meet regularly and so that was that's one of our big requests yeah anything
2: uh the holidays for us um and and our team uh just that um it's just a kind of active time in the uh french life a lot of people are out and uh christmas festivals and things like that so maybe just um it's a it's just a good time to interact with other people both in the the church and the community so um just prayer for the holidays and also you missing our family and things like that That. Would, uh, uh, we're not moving. This is the first Christmas in two years where we'll be moving right after. So, there's uh, a lot of that's joy a there. Huge praise and yeah. Just
0: that yeah, we could. That that's uh, great. That's
1: great. And uh, yeah, and then finally, maybe uh, pray for our kids um, as they continue to adjust here. They're doing well with school and they're speaking French now, so that's making it a lot easier for them. But, but they'd start to think of this as home, and um, and you know uh, they're young enough so they should adjust. But um, we, we
0: appreciate grace for them okay well uh, let me pray for you guys um, and uh, thanks for thanks for doing this thanks for connecting up with us it's great fun it's good good to uh, see you uh, in, uh, well sort of live and in the flesh uh, albeit on a screen but uh, but it's it's great to connect and um, let me pray uh, father I do thank you for Chris and Danette and their their children Um for, for the work that uh, you have been doing through them and, and in them uh, these last almost two years now as they have worked on the adjustment uh, of living in France uh, where everybody speaks French. Uh, and so I pray for them as they continue to learn the language and try to uh, get better at communicating, get better at, at listening uh, to the uh, French Nationals that that live uh, e- even beside them, even their uh, immediate neighbors, uh, but in their uh, in their city and in their uh, greater community, I do pray for their need to find a place to meet uh, for the uh, the small group of, of Christians that, that that are currently there but longing for a church and and a and, a, and a, an organized place where they can have worship services. So I pray you would provide that for them. Uh, I pray for their relationships, uh, particularly in the. Uh, from now until the end of the year, uh, as many people are out and many people are are uh, are doing public gatherings and involved in festivals and various celebrations uh, between now and uh, the new year, and I pray for opportunities for Chris and Donette to to meet uh, meet new neighbors, uh, to to get to know uh, new people, uh, other people, uh, and that you would grant them an opportunity to have these people even into their home and. And, and learn more about what it means uh, to be French and, and, and how they relate uh, to the things of faith and, uh, and to, to God himself. Pray that you give them courage uh, and boldness uh, to declare uh, your truth and yet humility to be, um, uh, well, to not think that, uh, that they know it all uh, because they're from America, uh, but to humble themselves and to, to try to learn, continue to listen to those around them uh, but I pray for success for them. I do pray, we long for the day when there will be multiple congregations, multiple churches in the Toulouse area preaching the gospel, seeing people come to faith, uh, and and seeing uh, seeing that part of your world uh, taken taken back, really, uh, for you, uh, for your honor and glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Uh, thank God you. bless, and uh, keep us posted. See you later. We
1: will, thank you.
0: Richard, if you uh, if you would, thank you.
3: I can't can't believe it. You come out on who who was here last night, and you came back. Wow! Is this working? Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, it's working. Okay, good. Um, I'm just glad to be with you again. Thank you very much, and. Um, As I said last night, I always get pumped up at missions times when churches focus on the mission. Of course, in many churches, it's a little bit like Christmas, right? It's something you think about once a year. And that can be kind of deceptive, you know, because this really isn't supposed to be Christmas. It's supposed to be every day. Yep, but that's okay. Let's celebrate Christmas, and then we'll... We'll, we'll feel guilty about not thinking about it other times later. How's that sound? That'd be all right. Okay, do you have a Bible? You have there in the pew in front of you in the do you call these pews? Um, the bench in front of you. If you'll turn to Romans, yeah, we're going to do New Testament. Remember footnotes. Romans chapter 1, and that's on page 939 toward the back. 939, Romans chapter 1, and I want to read a passage to you that many of you have probably heard before, but I think it's just a fantastic passage to look at as we think about doing the mission. Romans chapter 1, let's begin in verse 14. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we bless you, we honor you, and we give you thanks for these words from your apostle. Lord, for many of us now, it's early on a Saturday morning, a time when we usually uh, sort of take it easy and um, dream about other things and try to just make it through the morning and relax, and we're here and we pray now that you'll send Holy Spirit to us to enliven us and wake us up, that we can hear you speak that we can have our hearts softened toward you, that we can be empowered to do what you would have us do. Uh, We bless you for the opportunity. It's a rare opportunity to spend a Saturday morning like this, and we give you thanks for it and ask your blessing now. Amen. Romans chapter 1. Let me remind those of you who weren't here, I'll tell you for the first time, but those who were, I'm sure you haven't thought about anything but what we said last night, right, (laughs) since then. So let me just sort of give you a big picture here. Um, What I was suggesting to you last night was that being on mission, and by that I mean helping other people hear about Jesus, however you do that, and there are many, many different ways to do that, is not something that you put onto your life when it becomes convenient. But rather it's supposed to be at the very heart of who you are because that's the way God made human beings in the beginning. He made us and he put us on mission and the mission was to turn the world into his kingdom. It's a great, great thing. By being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth, subduing and having dominion over it. Uh, I've had some people tell me, by the way, that they do have mission conference babies because of that talk that I gave on Genesis 1. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we went home and we were fruitful and multiplied. What do you want? We did it. <laughs> That's what they tell me <laughs> years later, you know. This is our little mission conference baby. It's because of you. Thanks. Well, that was a great thing. But we also saw that the mission is not just something that's like the original floor plan of what it means to be a human being, but we also saw that it's like a relay race. That what was given to Adam and Eve in the beginning was like a baton handed off then to a special man and a special nation called Israel. And God came to Abraham and said, don't drop the baton now because I'm giving you this mission. It's being passed to you. You pass it on also. But to do that, you've got to have certain things going on, and we do too. If we're going to be a part of the relay race, we've got to know how to trust God. We've got to know how to set our hearts, our expectations for good things in life in the next world rather than this world. And we've also got to figure out that the reason we've been given all the things we've been given as Christians is not really for us. You know, it only takes about 10 minutes After somebody believes that they're elect, for them to begin to believe they're also the elite. Did you know that? Do you ever wonder what happened to you when you prayed to receive John Calvin into your heart? (laughs) That's what happened. You began to believe that you were elected, chosen by God, and all of a sudden you became the elite. Oh, you're so special. No, you're not. No, we're not. We're not special. God loves us, but not because we're special. God loves us and chooses us so that we can be instruments of his blessing to the world. That's why we're in this thing called Christianity. That's what it's all about. And Abraham had to learn that early on, and he did. And because of that, people like you and me, most of us who um, are from pagan backgrounds, Um, our ancestors were worshiping demons when Abraham was worshiping the God of heaven and earth, and here we are today worshiping Abraham's God. It's just fantastic to believe that that's true and to realize how how, how magnificent it is that people in the past understood that their role in life was to pass it to somebody else. And we have to know that too. But there was a part of the passage in Genesis chapter 12 last night that we did not touch on. And it was in that verse 3 where he says, and, you'll, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. It was this, that God said to Abraham, he said, Now those who bless you, meaning those that receive you, Abraham, I will bless Which is a great thing, because that's what you want to happen. You want people to say, well, I like you, and I like your religion, so I want to join up with you, and they'll be blessed if they do that. But he also said, those who dishonor you, I will curse, or those who curse you, I will curse, some translations put it. Which tells you something, doesn't it? That is that not everybody's going to accept you being nice to them. Not everybody's going to welcome it. And the reason for that is because... Being a part of the mission means you're a part of a conflict. Because we have two forces that are going after the same thing. We're going after the world. And they are going after it, and we are going after it. And any time you have two groups of people that are going after the same thing, there's going to be conflict. In fact, war. And if you know that in your personal life, or if you can see it in the larger American culture now, or if you can see it in the conflicts we have around the world that are going on, I mean even political, physical wars, you can see that there's more going on there. There's something behind the curtain that is more than simply well, you know, these people don't like these people, or these people just won't get in line, that kind of thing, or they're crazy and we're not. It's more than that, right? It's a spiritual battle going on behind these things. And we have got to realize that to be the kind of people that are on mission means we've got to be ready to go into battle. And to go into battle means you need to have some confidence. If there's one thing that soldiers are taught it is that when they go into battle, if you're not confident that you should be there and confident that you can do the job and confident that you can win, you better stay at home. That's just all there is to it. And I mean, imagine an eight year old boy standing on the stage of his elementary school, and the curtain's about to open, and he's about to sing his first solo. He was terrified. I can guarantee you he was terrified because I was the boy. Tears were coming down my cheeks. I was shaking like this. I know that everybody's going to hate me. They're going to think I'm a fool, you know, those kinds of things. My third grade teacher saw me shaking like that, and she said, hold the curtain, hold the curtain. And so she ran over to me, and she grabbed me by the shoulders, and she started shaking me like this. And she said, Richie, if you don't get some confidence, you're going to mess up this whole program. Well, thank you, Ms. Camper. Like, I didn't know that already. I remember thinking, that just that. Why, why are you telling me this? You're ruining this. Making it even worse. Well, you know, she may not have done the right thing, but she was saying the truth, wasn't she? If you don't think you ought to be doing this, if you don't think you can do this, if you don't think to some measure you can succeed in it, if you don't have confidence in something you're about to do, then you should probably just stay at home. The same thing is true when it comes to being on mission. I mean, last night, I encouraged you to start thinking about the people around you, like your next-door neighbor or people across the lake or people that you meet at work, people you meet in school, and to start thinking and planning on how to connect to them. Well, it's not going to be easy. In fact, they're going to, many of them, resist you and think you're crazy, think you're just an old-fashioned fool to believe these things, or as they were saying in France, that you're a cult because you actually believe in Jesus and believe in the Bible and weird things like that. And facing that kind of world today, and you're going to be facing it more and more, we've got to realize that we are at war. Now, did you notice in this passage in verse 14 what the Apostle Paul said? He said, I am eager to go to Rome. Well, who wouldn't be? Let me ask the ladies here. If your husband today brings you an envelope and he hands it to you and it has tickets, round-trip tickets for the two of you to go to Rome, are you going to be happy or are you going to be sad? What do you think? Anybody going to be sad about that? I don't think so. I mean, who doesn't want to go to Rome, right? You get to see the Colosseum, the Vatican, throw some coins in a fountain. That's an old movie. And, you know, it must be Rome. This is great. And so going to Rome these days, it would be a very fun thing for most of us to do. If you like to travel at all, then going to Rome would be great. But that's not the way it was in Paul's day. In Paul's day, going to Rome would be a whole lot more like you and me today, going to Mecca, the capital of Islam. Because Rome was the capital of the evil empire of that day. The empire that oppressed Israel, the empire that hated Christians, the empire that was just so contrary to, it was the mega power, the world power that was devoted to Everything contrary to the ways of God. And they were out to get the Christians. They had crucified Jesus. And so, much like you and me thinking about going to Mecca, I mean, can you imagine going to Mecca and handing out tracts while they're walking around that big black stone? I mean, can you imagine that? When Paul says, I'm eager to go to Rome to preach the gospel or to share things with you in Rome, that's what he's saying. I'm I'm eager to start walking around that circle and I'm going to be walking the wrong direction handing out tracts the whole time. Now notice he didn't say, I'm willing to do that or I'll begrudgingly do that because God's commanded me to. No, he says, I'm eager, I'm ready to do this. That's really remarkable when you think about it. Because he was going to the capital city of the evil empire of the world. In fact, when he was in prison, they gave him the option of being let out. And he said, no, thank you, I appeal to Caesar. I'm going to Rome with this thing. He volunteered to do this. To go right into the fray of the battle for the world. Because the Apostle Paul understood something that you and I forget... And that is that Jesus is the king of the world and that his kingdom, just like from the very beginning with Adam and Eve, is to be a kingdom that his people want to see spread to every single inch of the planet. And when you got that on your heart and your mind, you know you're going to come in conflict with the world that wants to spread its kingdom to the ends of the earth too. You with me on that? Well, then how could the Apostle Paul want to do this? How could he be ready to do it? How could he be eager to go to Rome? It's because this passage tells us he had confidence. Now, not the kind of confidence Miss Camper wanted me to have as an eight-year-old, confidence in myself. I can do this. Okay? Not that kind of confidence. Uh, He had confidence in something else. Did you see it? Verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to the pagan. He said, I'm ready to go to Rome. I'm ready to enter right into the conflicts. I'm ready to be rejected. I'm ready to be put back in prison. I'm ready to be executed for this. Why? Because I have no shame. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. You know, in many respects, a lot of us would wonder, well, why would he ever waste the ink to say, I'm not ashamed? I mean, mean, he's the missionary, right? Everybody knew he wasn't ashamed of the gospel. Why, Why did he say, I am not ashamed? That seems like a waste of paper, doesn't it? Except that he knew something about himself, and he knew something about the Christians in Rome, and he knew something about you and me. It's natural. It's normal. It's normal for us not to want to face the fight. Nobody wants to do that. If you're the kind of person that loves to fight, there's, there are words for you. Okay, It's called like polemical and pugnacious and things like that. If you're the kind of person that loves to fight, well, then uh, we don't like you. Thank you. You need to change, because really, you really ought ought not be a person that really just, i like a good old fight. That's great. No, that's not the way we're supposed to be. It's certainly not the way Jesus was. But here the Apostle Paul says, I'm ready to enter the fight because I have great confidence. I'm not ashamed. He knew that that was true of him, that it was natural to be that way. He knew it was true of other Christians in his day, and he knows it's true of us too. And don't you know it's true of you? I have been a professional Christian for more than 40 years. Okay, that means I have made my living from my religion. That's a very dangerous thing to do. Because when you make your living from your faith, where are you out there? What do you do you do? You always lose one or the other. Okay, so I'm a person that has made his business, his life. I mean, I pay my mortgage out of my faith. And you would figure, wouldn't you, that after 40 years, I would have no shame about my faith. Wouldn't you expect that? But it's not true. I look for practically any excuse I can possibly have for not getting into some kind of conflict with somebody over religion. And I hate it in Orlando. In Orlando, I don't know what it's like down here, but in Orlando, you can't find a manly (laughs) barbershop. Okay, you know, the kind with the curly Q thing and the kind of thing that only men go there. Ladies, let me tell you something. You know how your husband wants to come home from work in the evening and sit down and he won't talk to you? He just wants to watch TV or something? And he, (laughs) like that. Well, we don't want to talk at the barbershop either. You just come in and say, give me the regular, okay. And if you want to talk, you can, if it's usually about NASCAR and stuff like that, you know. But if you don't want to talk, they're fine. They don't need to talk to you. This is perfectly fine with them. Men just don't like to do this. But you go to these unisex places, and they train the people cutting your hair to talk to you. You've noticed that, right? They pull that little ticket out, and they look at your name, and they say, well, Richard, how are you today? I'm fine. And you know what's going to come Well, Richard, what do you do? (laughs) I'm a teacher. You're what? I'm a teacher. Well, what do you teach? I teach religion. You teach what? Religion. Where do you do that? In a seminary. In a seminary. Are you a rabbi? I think they think my beard means I'm a rabbi. And I say no. Well, then are you a priest? Because, see, they don't know what an evangelical is. That's shameful to begin with, isn't it? I mean, they don't know what this is. What kind of animal is this? So you're not, you can teach in the seminary and you're not a rabbi, you're not a priest. Weird, huh? You know, what's really hard about it is that by the time, often, this doesn't happen every single time, but it's not unusual because, you know, the employees change in those places even if you keep going back to the same place. Um, They start talking and asking questions about what I believe. I mean weird things that I believe, like Jesus is the only way of salvation. Are you kidding me? That's just so unthinkable to people that they think you are an absolute fool to believe something like that. And things like that the Bible is the word of God and that we ought to obey it. Are you just nuts? I mean, I remember one time, you know, the, the, the new employee that has to sweep up the hair, you know, that person. I remember one time she was standing behind me going like this. I wanted so much to say, I can see you in the mirror. I didn't. I let her off the hook, but I wanted to say that, okay? So when I get my hair cut, it's like this dread comes over me. Because I know what's going to happen and I try to avoid it just as much as I possibly can. Can't I have, can't I just have like 30 minutes of privacy? I mean, can't I just be an ordinary person that doesn't have to stand out? I mean, do they really, does everybody have to think I'm weird? You know, when I go into those places, I want them to like me. I want them to respect me. I want them to think I'm cool. He's an old man, but he's cool. Yeah, that's what I want them to think. But they don't, because we are at odds. They want the world to be one way, and I want the world to be another way. And those two don't get along with each other. There's opposition there. Now, maybe you have, if you're as old as me, or even close to it, you can remember a time when it was respectable to be a Christian, in Central Florida. And there are still some remnants of that if you have a very small circle of people. But if you get out of your tiny little circle of two or three people, it's not cool to go to church anymore. It's a whole lot more like France than they imagine it to be, perhaps. That people may not be rude, but they think you're weird. When they see you get up on Sunday morning and rather than mow your grass, you go to church and then you go off to some other meeting at church and, and you really want to make them think you're weird, invite them. Have some kind of event that would be nice for them to come to at a church. Now, man, you are weird. You must be in some kind of cult. Are you like a fanatic or something? So the reality is that you and I are the kinds of people that live in a world now where being a real Christian, a committed Christian, is like driving an old, old car. I remember one time in high school, I would, before I became a Christian when I was 17, I was pretty typical for my socioeconomic bracket of what a teenager was like. And we used to stand at the parking lot, at the entrance to our parking lot in our high school, and watch what kind of cars people drove in teachers and students and and we would judge them based upon what kind of car they drove you know if they drove a new car a race car you know souped up sports car or something they were really cool that was the person you want to date you know that's the teacher you want to get to know that kind of thing if they drove old cars like the one i drive now um, then it would you know you were like goofy stupid what a loser And I remember one time, there was a car coming toward our parking lot, right down the road toward our parking lot, and it was old. It was maybe 20 years old or so. And it was back in the old days, some of you can remember this, that uh, windshields would cloud up when they got old. You know what I'm talking about? They would become sort of cloudy. And um, the, the headlight was cockeyed, and the bumper was just barely holding on and the fenders were bent, and there were rusted spots on it, and it came down the road, and it was shaking like this, okay? And we, you know, we just kind of ignored it for a while because nobody would drive a car like that to our school, for sure. But you see, this guy was new to our school. He came from West Virginia. Not from Southwest Virginia, but West Virginia. Everybody's got to think somebody's lower than them, right? Scott, we called His name was Scott, and we called his car the Hick Wreck, okay? And... He came in to our, the entrance of our driveway, and rather than hiding down like this, ashamed of his car like he should have, he had his arm up in the window like this. He saw us, saw this gauntlet of guys standing there, and he went, hey y'all, how you doing? And drove on in and got out of his car. He did not realize that he should have been ashamed of what he was driving. He was a loser. Well, Friday night, we had another custom, and we were gonna let him know what a loser he was. It was just right out of American Graffiti, that movie, where you would go up, cruise up and down this six-lane road called Williamson Road in Roanoke, Virginia, and had all these stoplights on it. And this is before the internet, the interstates rather, were very uh, prominent. And you just go up and down all Friday night, okay? And you know what would happen? You come to a red light, and you know what you do, <laughs> like that. And um, you don't look at the person next to you because it might be your mother. Um, <laughs> But we did listen, and if the person next to you, they did it too, then you knew you had a race to the next light. So we all went out looking for Scott. We all tried to find Scott. We were going to show him what a loser he was, and several of us raced him, and we all lost hands down. (laughs) Couldn't believe it. Later on that night in the drive-in, yeah, the hamburger drive-in with the roller skates and everything, all that stuff, um, he pulled in. It didn't pay any attention to us, but he just got out, walked around to the front of his car, and opened the hood. And so we all walked over, and now we knew why. Why we lost? Because he didn't care what his car looked like on the outside. He had rebuilt the engine of his car. From the ground up with all the chrome, magnum, four-barrel, this, that, and the other that you put on cars back in those days. And he had turned that car into a racing machine. And now we understood why he was not ashamed of his car. It was because it didn't look good on the outside, but it had power under the hood. That's what Paul says in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel... Because it has the power of God in it. Now to understand what the Apostle Paul was saying, being willing to drive a hick wreck right into the city of Rome and to say, I'm not ashamed of this because it's got power in it, you and I have to back up for a minute. And think about what the word gospel means. Because this is a big problem for you and me. And I'm going to say something now that may make your head explode. You may see brain on the walls. It's okay. It'll be okay. But because we've become so used to a Christianized culture where it's safe to be a Christian, where it's okay to be a Christian, that's going away. That's why you don't feel comfortable anymore. That's why you feel ashamed, but we've kind of operated with this. Your parents did, your grandparents did, and so you sort of inherit it. We build churches that way. We, we think that way about our Christian faith, that it's okay, it's safe. We've, we've got a good job here. Then what we've done is we've taken this word gospel, which basically means good news, and we've reduced it down to something that can be believed today. And this is what we've reduced it down to, that if you believe in Jesus... He'll take care of your guilt. If you believe in Jesus, here's some good news. He'll help you not be ashamed anymore of all those things you've done. If you just believe in Jesus, then he might even heal some of your relationships, like your marriage and your children. And and you'll even be able to join a nice little club called a church and have boring fellowship dinners. That's what we tell people the gospel is. And that's what we actually believe the gospel is. It's sort of a psychotherapy. And Let me tell you something. You can get peace of mind from Buddha. You want some peace of mind and get over the shame you have? Go to a therapist. They'll help you do that. They can do that. Go to yoga classes. You can become centered and everything will feel better about your life. But what we have done is we've actually begun to believe that that's what the gospel message of Jesus is. That is a way for nice people to become a little bit nicer. For people to get over the pain that they have in their lives. For people to heal their personal relationships. Because we don't have a bigger picture in mind. That's all that the gospel is to us anymore. Well, I have good news for you. That's not what the word good news means in the Bible. Ah, How about that? Yes, it's true that if you come to Jesus, he will forgive you of your sins. The slate will be wiped clean. It'll be fantastic because you actually get his goodness, his righteousness given to you. It's a magnificent thing. And yes, it's true that if you come to Jesus, In all likelihood, many of your relationships, your personal relationships, like with your husband or your wife, will get better. But that's not what good news means in the Bible. If you take a look at the way the expression good news is used in the Old Testament, which is where it comes from, by the way. Jesus didn't make it up. John the Baptist didn't make it up. Good news gospel. Jesus didn't make it up. Good news, gospel. Paul didn't make it up right here in verse 16. Good news, gospel. It's actually an Old Testament term. And let me tell you how the word was used in the Old Testament. Anytime you went out to battle to fight a war, conflict, and your army won the day, then a messenger would be sent back to the king. And the message that that person had as he came back to the king to tell them what happened in the battle was, I got some good news for you. We have won the battle. That's what Christian good news is. Not that you can simply be forgiven of your sins and have your psychotherapeutic relationship with Jesus but that Jesus has won the battle for the world. That in his death and resurrection and his ascension into heaven, Jesus conquered sin and all the effects that sin has had in the world. That Jesus has conquered every false god that has ever been raised up in defiance of the true God of heaven and earth. That Jesus has won the right to own the entire world and that the defeat of every opponent is sure. Their doom is sure. And Jesus has actually defeated the greatest enemy any of us will ever face. And that last enemy is death itself. People know that the world is messed up. You can't watch the news right now with all the people out on the streets rioting and the like without realizing they know something's not the way it ought to be. And you can't watch the commentators who say, everybody calm down, please, without knowing that even the commentators on the news that even they know things aren't the way they're supposed to be. The world's messed up. You can't read and listen and watch the war in Mosul right now without knowing, man, this is a messed up place You cannot hear about the persecution of Christians and other groups by Islamic radicals and not know that this world is messed up. You can't see the Chinese challenging property rights of the islands in the South China Sea without realizing we're on the brink of a nuclear holocaust in this world. You cannot... Watch and be aware of anything, whether it's in your personal relationships or right here in Winter Haven or all around the world without without realizing that death is everywhere around us and that the gods of this world are wreaking havoc on the human race. Now, see, it's into that kind of world, the kind of world that Paul was going at the capital city of the evil empire of his day, Rome, And he says, I'm not ashamed to go there because I know something. A messenger has come and the messenger has said, we have won the battle. There's no question as to what the outcome will be. We have won because Jesus has won. So when people raise these social ills that are all around us, when they, when they talk about how messed up the world is, our answer to them is, don't worry about that, because all you really need to do is just find forgiveness and peace of mind in Jesus. That's not our good news. Our good news is that the answer to every problem in the world today is one word, Jesus. Of course, the challenge is, do you believe that? I'm afraid that one of the leftovers of the ways that Christianity has sort of fit into Southern culture in the United States for so many years is that basically we don't. Not only have we reduced the good news down to something very small, but because we still live with this myth that the world around us is sort of friendly to us, we actually think that there are other forces that can solve the problems of the world. A lot of us in this room identify more vigorously with, dare I say, the University of Florida or Florida State than we do with Christianity. A lot of us in this room identify more with our fraternity or our sorority than we do with Jesus. A lot of us identify ourselves with our businesses a lot more than we identify ourselves with Jesus. A lot of us in Southern culture actually think that being a part of the particular political party that you're a part of, We have more vigorous, more vibrant identity with that than we do with Jesus. Now, what does that say about us? When we're willing to make ourselves look like fools by putting political signs in our front yards for a particular candidate, but we hide the fact that we are Christian. What does it say about us when we're willing to pour money and make donations to godless sports programs in universities? <laughs> and we hide the fact that we are Christian. It tells you exactly who you are. And that is that your confidence that life can be better, your confidence that life can be good, that life is worth living, and that the people around you, if they just got the clue that they should be doing this too, that they would be having a better life too, is not found in Jesus, but found somewhere else. And of course, unless you really are superficial, you take a breath and you say, well, my team lost this year. Ole Miss beat us again. Alabama struck us down again. Yeah, we won this political fight, but in two years, another one's coming. And you get depressed and you say, well, life is horrible. There is no hope. So you and I have to be like the Apostle Paul. Paul. We have to know that being a Christian means you're in conflict for the world. And that the only way you can have confidence in facing this world today is by putting your confidence in the good news that the messenger has brought to us. And that good news is Jesus has won the world. If you can be like that, then you'll be like Scott and his hick-rack. And when they see those rust spots on your car, and they realize your religion is just some old-fashioned thing, and they look at your church and say, well, that is a throwback to a day in the past, you can stand up and say, I'm not ashamed of that. Why? Because we got power under the hood. You know, words have power. You know that, don't you? When somebody insults you, it hurts your feelings, that's power. When somebody praises you and it makes you feel better, that's power over you. But hear what the Apostle Paul says the message about Jesus has power in it, but it's the power of God in it. You see, we don't have to fight, but all we have to do is tell them who's already fought. And as strange as this sounds, the power of the God who made everything and the power of God who sustains everything is put into those words. And when you've got the power of those words, how can you be ashamed? Now, almost everybody in the room today, at one point in your life, you've seen that power. Maybe you were like me. I was raised in the church, and I heard the gospel my whole life, but it wasn't until I was 17 that the power was there. I didn't hear anything new that night when I came to Christ, but what happened to me was something that I had heard before, It never had broken through. But man, when the power of God in those simple words that Jesus will save you from your sins, when that message got to me, it was so powerful that it radically transformed my life. And I suspect there are people like that here today who can say, yeah, I had heard it before, but all of a sudden, I didn't even know what had happened. All of a sudden, the power broke through. And that's wonderful if you had that experience, but let me encourage you this way. If you have not seen the power of God for very long, then it's easy to forget about it. And that's what happens to churches. Churches get Christians, they're all nice people, you know, and they're kind of going along and everything's okay you have a few fights and you get disappointed in things but if you don't have new christians coming into a church then it's easy for you to forget what kind of power the simple message of the good news that jesus won has for people so when was the last time you saw what the good news of jesus can really do in a person's life The kind of transformation that can take place. Because it's not just simply that a person becomes a better person. What does he say? It's the power of God unto salvation. The kind of power that can take somebody, a teenager, who is doomed to self-destruction and turn that person around. Just hearing about what Jesus has done. It's the kind of power that can reach into the life of a family that's about to break up and can turn that family around in a split second. It's the kind of power that can even be given to somebody on their deathbed and give them everlasting life. When was the last time you saw that happen? If you haven't seen that for a while, it's time for you to see it again. So if somebody comes to your church and you find out they're a new believer, get to know that person, would you please? Because they've got their first love and the power is rushing through them in ways you cannot imagine. You can't even remember how it does that. And if you don't have new Christians coming to this church, which you should, it will be uncomfortable because they won't know exactly what to do, but that will be great. You'll see the power in them. But if you don't have new Christians coming to this church, then let me tell you something, you need to have them coming to this church. You need to be eager to see them coming to this church. And that means that you need to get out there and tell these powerful words to somebody in your life today. We've won. How can you possibly be ashamed of that? We've won. How can you possibly be ashamed of our king who has done the job? So one of the reasons that the apostle Paul is not ashamed of the gospel is because he knows the kind of power it had in his life. It took him from being a person that murdered Christians to the apostle of Christians. And that's quite a transformation, isn't it? But he says something else here that's really important too. In the very last part of verse 16, he says, it is the power of God into salvation. But now listen to what he says to everyone who believes to the Jew first and then to the Greek or to the, pagan. Um, At this point, Paul's not talking so much about the punch or the power that the gospel has. He's talking about the reach of the gospel, the long arm of the gospel. Does anybody remember who Mike Tyson was? If you don't know, he was a boxer. They just made an HBO thing about him a couple of years ago and the transformation in his life and things like that. And I don't know, he's, he's a has-been for sure when it comes to boxing. But Mike Tyson was a very powerful boxer. He had big arms, and I remember one time seeing him hit a man like this and literally lift, him, lift his opponent off the canvas. He hit him so hard. Unbelievable how strong his arms were. He had a lot of power. But Mike Tyson had a very um, huge liability. As a boxer, does anybody know what the liability was? That's right, he did not, his arms were short. And that meant that he'd be swinging and the other person would just be pulling back, couldn't even get to him, and he'd be punched in the face while he's swinging in the air because his arms were so short. If you're a boxer, you want to have long arms, not just strong ones. And that meant that Mike Tyson had to get in very, very close to hit the other guy, sometimes so close that he, I'm sure he was tempted to bite the other guy's ear and things like that. <laughs> There's a famous event where he did that or he bit the guy's ear, okay? It's it's a great liability if you have power without a long arm if you're a boxer. Because what it says to you is, okay, I got the power, but it's not going to do anything out there. Well, the apostle talks about the fact at the end of verse 16 that the good news about Jesus, he won, we win, is not just powerful, it also has a very long reach to the Jew first, he says. And that's, that's something of a history lesson because Jesus was Jewish, Paul was Jewish, the apostles were all Jewish and the gospel, the good news about Jesus went to them first and then it went to the Gentiles. So it's a little bit of a history lesson but it's something else too. Unlike today, unless you live in certain parts of the United States or uh, unless you've been in Israel and places or other places where this is true, you. you there are places in the world where you can say that person's Jewish and that person's not. Well, go, to, go to Brooklyn. You'll be able to do that, okay, if you don't know what I'm talking about. In fact, there are parts of um, Orlando that I drive through occasionally where there are very conservative Jewish communities and they don't drive on Sabbath and that kind of thing. So they all live together right around their synagogue. So you can tell that they're Jews. Um, but most of us, we can't see the difference, And so often you'll say the wrong thing for that reason. You go, whoops, I didn't know. Um, But the reality was in Paul's day, you could tell the difference. Jews were very nice people in Paul's day. They'd be the kind of people you'd want in your church. They knew because they went to synagogue all the time. They knew when to stand up in church, when to sit down. They knew where books in the Bible were. They didn't have to have page numbers said to them. They knew what a hymnal was. Do you know most people don't know what a hymnal is these days? You say, well, take your hymnal. You've got hymnals in this church. What's up with that anyway? Do you use them? No? Okay, good. <laughs> okay, so, but they knew what a hymnal was. You know, if you say, pick up your hymnal, a lot of people are going, to go, what are they even talking about? What's a hymnal? And did you know that today in America... When that most people in America today, most people in America today, when they hear the word gospel, do you know what that means to them? It's a type of music. I mean, they don't have a clue what you're talking about. I know you think that everybody out there knows that Jesus died for their sins and that he was resurrected on the third day and now he's in heaven and he's going to come back again. They do not. They don't know that. Can you believe that, that the people with whom you work, the people you meet at the store, the people that you meet at the restaurant, the waiter and the waitress, they don't know even the most fundamental basic things about the Christian faith today. They are not like the Jews in Paul's day, well prepared for the gospel. Well, the gospel, the good news is for people well prepared, for nice people. I mean, the Jews were the kinds of people you'd want living next door to you. They knew the difference between a cuss word and a polite word. The kids were well-behaved. They wouldn't stay up late on Saturday night. Okay, they're nice people. And, and the good news is for people like that. A lot of you were like that. You were already nice before you became a Christian. Okay, right, way to go. Good. I never sinned before I became a Christian. Never. I was perfect. Remember, I sang all those solos and everything. People used to, I remember the old ladies in the choir used to say, oh, you should be a little girl because your eyes are so blue. Look at those eyelashes. Oh, and you sing like a little angel. Well, see, I, that's what I was, okay? I was a little little choir boy, little perfect little boy, all the way until I became 17 and the Vietnam War was going on, and then I went berserk. Because my number was coming up next year. Okay? And then I came to Jesus. But Paul doesn't say here that the good news is just for those people. Nice people. He says for the Jew first and then for the Greek. And they were not nice people. They were not the kinds of people you would want in your church. Yes, they had tattoos. Lots of them. Yes, they had rings everywhere you could possibly put a ring. They did not know the difference between a polite word and a cuss word. You got people in your church like that? You're talking to them and you go, oh, whoa, whoa, I didn't even know that word. <laughs> if you don't, there's something wrong here. They're not the kinds of kids, they're not the kinds of people that have had kids that you would want in your youth group. Because you'd be saying to yourself, they're perverting our kids. The reality is your kids are perverting them. Yes, they'd be smoking dope all the time. That's what pagans are like. You know, they were the kinds of people who would drive on Saturday night. They'd be so drunk that they would drive their pickup truck and park it in your front yard rather than theirs. Because they couldn't tell which was which. They were just lucky to get home. But do you hear what Paul says here? The good news is not just for nice people. The good news is for them too. It's got the power for them and it's got the reach for them. If you think that this church can grow by continuing just to have more nice people come here, then you're sorely mistaken. If you think that Winter Haven can be changed by having more people that look just like you, and by the way, everybody here looks just like you, then you're sorely mistaken. You've got to have the pagans with you. The kinds of people you don't like. They've got to be ugly. They've got to be mean. They've got to be rude. They've got to be lost. Their demons are not as pretty as the demons that bother you. They've got the demons. But we do too. We're just used to our demons. But here's the wonder of it all. The Apostle Paul, in a day when the powers of this world were absolutely capable of crushing it all, crushing the whole Christian movement with the snap of a finger, in a day of an empire that would dare to do things like blame the burning of Rome on Christians and put them up on posts and burn them alive and light up the city with the bodies of Christians. In a day when that's what world powers did, he said, I'm not ashamed of this good news. We have won. And it's not just for my little Jewish community that's already well prepared for this. It's for the pagans. And aren't you glad he believed that? because he's the one that brought Jesus to you. When I drove up last night, I was following the GPS. I don't know why I, mean, I did. It took me the most circuitous, circuitous way to get here, all the way through downtown, okay, from Orlando, brought me down rather than coming this way. I should have looked at the map. In fact, about 10 years ago, I had been here before, and I came down this road this way. So when I pulled up, because the sign's been changed and everything, I didn't even, I didn't even recognize the church until I walked into the fellowship hall. And then I remembered, I've been here. I've preached here. I gave a little lesson after lunch in the fellowship hall. I remembered And then I thought to myself, you see, because I knew this was a relatively new church plant, and forgive me for not doing the 360 on your church before I came, okay? When I looked at this building, I said, my goodness, what an opportunity this church has. I mean, this is a magnificent building. And a lot of our church plants struggle with nothing. Nothing. They can't do anything, just like in France. Remember how he was talking about that? We really can't get a sustained church plant without some place to meet. They can't even find a place to meet. We have church plants in France, like in Paris, that are meeting. They rent the basement fellowship hall of a Catholic church. It's about the only place they can find in Paris to have a church. Well, look at you. You are sitting on something here that is absolutely phenomenal. But if from Monday to Saturday this church is not filled up with pagans that you are reaching for Christ, then there's something wrong here. And what would be wrong? You don't have confidence. You don't have confidence in this conflict. Instead you're retreating and why don't you have confidence because you're yet to understand that the good news is we have won the world and that this good news is powerful for people and it has a long arm that can reach everybody God wants it to reach See, you want to know a practical thing you can do? Come up here on Monday at 10 a.m. and find out what's going on in this building. Come on Wednesday at 2 in the afternoon and see what's going on. And if there's nothing going on, then ask your leaders why isn't there. Miss Camper shook me like this and she said, "Richie, if you don't get some confidence, you're going to mess up this whole program." Well, here you are in the program. If you don't get some confidence, you're going to mess up the whole program. Have you seen it happen here before? Have you seen it happen here before? It can happen again. Unless we hear the words of the apostle, "I am not ashamed of the gospel." because it is the power of God into salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we delight in you. What a wonderful gift you have given to us that we believe in something much bigger than that our lives can be changed, but that we believe that the world can be transformed. Help us, Lord Jesus, to have confidence in you and what you have done. Holy Spirit, we simply cannot do this on our own, but by your power, it can be done.